90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? Can't complain. Well, that's new. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, man. I don't even know what we're going to... There's not really anything to say about the weather either, man. It's been kind of a... I mean, firestorms in the Texas panhandle. Okay, yeah, that is true. That's the that's the definitely panic segment, yeah. Um, there was a really cool... Our friend Gary McManus, the um, climate guru of Oklahoma, put together a really cool time lapse of the satellites showing the wind shift. So we had quite a big um, cold front come through, and a lot of the country felt that. We got a... It was like a 66 degree drop in Iowa or something. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was really nuts to see those big fires in the Texas Panhandle like blowing to the north. And then as the cold front passed, they all start just shift directly to the south. Unreal. Yeah, I was watching it on radar, watching the radar returns off the smoke plumes. Which was also nuts. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Did you see it? From where you were, it was really hazy here and faintly smelling of burn. It was hazy here, but we also had some fires in eastern Oklahoma that yeah contributed most of that. I think yeah, uh, I know. There over was the a weekend, lot of... I was working and it was bad. Yeah, there was a lot of eastern Oklahoma fires. I thought that was interesting, but okay, so that's not true. We did have a lot of weather stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I am continually updating to. The resolutions, like usually I feel like we talk about our resolutions and we work on them and then we go back and look at, like listen to our resolution show, but I've kept the notes I made about my resolutions and I'm already about to discard one of them. Uh Uh-oh, which one? Uh, The year of yes. (laughs) Okay. I made it till the end of February and now I'm going to flame out like a bull eyed. (laughs) 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 it was too much it was a dumb thing to do yeah i'm trying to keep it up i'm definitely trying to keep it up but it was it's a lot year of yes is hard i i'm sure yeah yeah there's a lot of opportunities that happen (laughs) right (laughs) so yeah it's um it's uh it's been rough We'll see how it goes. I'm not ready to give it up all the way, but I just want to put that out there that if anyone else yeah. is thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. I haven't even made yeah, it too Yeah, I don't months. know. It's, I guess I, I haven't checked in on mine too much. I just keep crossing off, you know, books and mm-hmm. doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, crossed off book number seven this morning. Oh, dang. I better get with it. I'm only on number 10. Yeah. All this morning readings really uh, getting you up there. I might huh? pass you, which would <gasps> be a first. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> we better wrap up this podcast now. I got something to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, wow. That's good. Okay. Yep. I'll get back to it. Yeah, then. so that's been that's been fun, and I'm, I'm still getting up, and I've discovered I like going to do my, my workout early in the morning. Like five thirty in the morning instead of in the evening. Really? Does it keep you yeah. up too late when you do it in the evening? It can. Also, yeah. by the time I get home from work, my motivation and decision making capability is yep. zapped. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You should make all those hard decisions first thing. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I've been I've been liking that significantly more. Except the lazy bums that run the gym don't open it until seven o'clock on the weekends. <laughs> How dare so, them? Don't they know some know. of us don't have weekends? Like it all just runs together. <laughs> I know. As, as I say to everybody around here, it's just another day that ends in Y. <laughs> like, and they love that. They're like, "Yep, great." <laughs> yep. <laughs> I imagine that's every Monday when everyone's like, "How was your weekend?" <laughs> my what exactly (laughs) i feel that way about coffee shops my favorite coffee shop doesn't open till eight on sunday i'm like that is ridiculous i know 
Yeah. Oh, well. Say lovey. I mean, every day ends in Y when you just do whatever you want every day anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so. That is exactly right. <laughs> That's a good one. I have a little list here of, like, some of your really good zingers that I also like to remind myself of. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I found it. It had fallen down in my little notebook thing, but my... The last one that I pulled out was sometimes you just got to detonate the situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. And every exactly. now and then I, I, I pick a, one up from somebody. So yeah, that's and, how, and throw it into the rotation. It's how human culture works, right? <laughs> or, you know, Facebook memories reminds me of one from 13 years ago or something. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, that wow. was a good one. Ah, ah, ah. Oh, is it psych? Is that the one you're bringing back? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's right behind as we answer the phone to each other today, though. Was uh... <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> the look on my son's face when he heard that was <laughs> enough <laughs> to remind me how old I am. <clears throat> exactly. Old enough that we've talked for six minutes about the weather. <laughs> our goals. So we should probably talk about some geology. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, so I decided to take the reins this week and once again use my class preparation as the impetus to make a, a podcast. <laughs> so students, the test question answers are in the next half hour. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> So in my graduate paleomagnetism class, and I realized we hadn't, you know, we've done some, we've touched on a lot of paleomagnetism over the years, but not to the depths that we go to in this class. But I think it may be because, I don't know, is it just not something most people think about? (laughs) Maybe that's why. Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, everyone knows there's a magnetic field, right? But you don't think very much about, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, most people that listen to this podcast know there's a magnetic field. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, nearly all, I would hope. But um, if you don't, there's Earth has a magnetic field. And sometimes it does stuff to rocks. And I thought we would talk about what that stuff is. Yeah. And so, when rocks acquire a magnetization because they were formed in a magnetic field that's a natural remnant magnetization right right exactly so there's all kinds of things about magnetism which i'm sure we'll get into since i'm teaching this class but (laughs) this one's kind of the interesting one so there's this whole branch of geophysics called paleomagnetism and it has to do with those magnetizations that are left over in rocks And obviously, you have to have magnetic minerals in the rocks, or else Earth's magnetic field doesn't affect the rock at all, generally, right? (laughs) But there are magnetizations that get left over, and these are called remnant magnetizations. And I say that, now this is the first interesting thing that happened when I was writing these notes. So we write this word, natural remnant magnetizations, and we spell remnant, R-E-M, a-N-E-N-T. But you say it funny because it's how it's spelled. Exactly. <laughs> because because it's, it's the only way you know how to spell it. Yes, exactly. But it's different than the word remnant, which is what probably most people are used to, R-E-M-N-E-N-T. Because remnant is an adjective that describes stuff that's left over from a process versus remnant, which is a noun the stuff that's left over. I had Interesting. No idea. I know. I had no idea. <laughs> so <laughs> when you do this, when you like show students this, when you write this out, everybody's like, uh, you spelled that wrong. <laughs> and you're like, no, actually I didn't. But I never knew until I sat down to write these notes for the podcast that that is the difference. That's why it's spelled that way. <laughs> and so oftentimes, like this is, it's kind of a physics word. Because you're talking about something that's left over. So in this case, it's the magnetism that's left behind in the rock from interacting, that it got from interacting with Earth's field when something happened. So we could have called it 
residual magnetism or resulting magnetism, mm -hmm. something like that too. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. You probably residual would have been a good one. Mm -hmm. Now resulting would have been different because the actual like remnant magnetization is only part of the magnetization that most rocks get because the full magnetization of a rock, if you go outside and you're like, I'm going to measure your magnetization, it is a combination of the magnetization it has just by, by way of being in Earth's magnetic field plus that remnant magnetization that's left over from either when it formed or when something happened to it. So it's both, or the combo of all of those magnetizations, I said both, but it could be a whole bunch of different ones, um, that lead to any rock's magnetization in general. Hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. But like I said, there's a lot of different things that could result in a remnant magnetization in these rocks. Now, you took PMAG, so... I'm sure you remember from a long 10, time 11, ago. 12. <laughs> Keep counting. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just looking it up today because we did a lab uh, in class today. And I was like, oh, look, there's, there's Sean's name on this lab from 2011. <laughs> Why on earth was my name on something from that? Mm -hmm. uh, it was from, um, well, it was from the stuff that we sampled during lab or during class and then did oh. a project on yeah out in colorado yeah mm -hmm. yep yep the big sucker i don't know if you remember that <laughs> oh i definitely remember I, I, funny enough i was flipping open one of my yellow field books to just get some random pictures of like this is what the inside of a geologist notebook looks like for some marketing stuff and there was notes from, ah, from a field camp and mapping the big sucker the big sucker. Yeah, it was a mafic dike in granitic rock. Um, I don't think it actually turned out magnetically, which was very disappointing. But No, oh. and honestly, we should go back and look at it. And I was going to say. On it. Yep, I agree. <laughs> there's, there's a good paper to be had out of that, that rock. Mm -hmm. Yep, I absolutely agree. But what might have happened to that rock and how it would have gotten a magnetization in the first place is one of the, I think it's the easiest one to understand, is that, so every rock has a natural rim, well, not every rock. A lot of rocks have this natural remnant magnetization, but you have to keep going further. So how did it get that magnetization? And we're going to talk about sort of the five, well, the three most common and two other ones. And the first one has to do with igneous processes, and it is a thermo remnant magnetization. Okay, so this tells me, we know that if you heat magnets up, they're no longer magnets. Yes, correct. So this probably means it, you have liquid rock that cools and acquires magnetism, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So depending on the magnetic characteristics of whatever you're talking about, and in general, what we're talking about are the magnetic minerals magnetite or hematite, as this blob of magma cools down and you precipitate out these minerals, there's a certain temperature called the Curie temperature that as this magma body cools, the rocks pass through this temperature. It's different for every mineral. And at that temperature and below, they acquire the magnetization right then at the second that they pass through that temperature the magnetic field is recorded in that mineral right yes and so do you remember the numbers do you remember how hot that is <laughs> oh no i have no <laughs> idea um i don't know probably somewhere in the i don't know four to six hundreds yeah mm -hmm. yep that's about it so like in general you could probably melt most rocks around 800 to 1100 degrees. So for hematite, it is uh, 680 Celsius and magnetite, it's like 575, 580 Celsius. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I couldn't have given you exact numbers for sure, but I mean, physics it's pretty, has to be somewhere in there. It's a really good, really good average, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you heat them up, and if I take a rock that has that magnetization and I heat it, 
that would mean that the minerals are then going to align with the current magnetic field. And if I cool it, they're going to lock that in, right? Right, exactly. And so TRMs, what we call thermal remnant magnetizations, um, pretty common in igneous rocks and very useful. In fact, this is how we figured out a lot about Earth's magnetic field in general, because all of those sea floors that we talk about um, in terms of figuring out that Earth's magnetic field changes polarity, and we figured that out at seafloor spreading ridges, right? Because that's a constant flow of magma that's cooling down. And so it creates a very high fidelity record of Earth's magnetic field behaviors. And it's because it's cooling down and all that magnetite, hematite in those rocks is going through that Curie temperature and locking in Earth's magnetic field at that time. So you can look at that and you've got a really great map of Earth's magnetic field directions. And those are all TRMs. Okay. So mm -hmm. that that makes sense. It does sound like it could be problematic. Yes. <laughs> we know rocks never get heated up or messed with once they're deposited. Oh, yeah, never, right? Once it's a rock, it's a rock. <laughs> right. So there are... Lots of things that could happen once your rock has gotten this TRM. And I mean, these TRMs are mostly igneous rocks. I think this is the low-hanging fruit of paleomag is to go out and get these igneous rocks because you know that those minerals are in there somewhere generally, <laughs> except for the ones we've drilled together that haven't worked out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh-huh, yeah. And, you know, you know that they've gone through this Curie temperature. So they've definitely seen the temperature that would lock in a magnetization. So, like, that's really great, right? Um, problems could occur if you've got something that's really slow cooling um, because we have these temperatures, but really locking in magnetization depends on a lot of things, the size of the grains and the coercive force. So... It has to do with a lot of physics on the crystal scale that I'm sure we can get into on other shows. So if you've got a large grain size distribution, you can your magnetization is a little more fluid, I guess, than it would be if you only had the perfect little minerals. So rocks aren't perfect. So yeah, TRMs can be not perfect too. But it's a really nice, like TRMs, they go through that Curie temperature. It's a really nice record of Earth's magnetic field at the time that rock was made. So that's what you're dating with that type of paleomagnetism when you have that kind of remnant magnetization. But it gets a little more confusing <laughs> when you get into this thing called a CRM, which is a chemical remnant magnetization. Oof. Yeah, I don't remember anything about these. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> so a paleomag sort of started with this igneous rock thing and then comes along. Well, while igneous rocks are the bulk of the rocks on Earth, if you're just working at the surface, which most of us are, what's the most common rock type? Sedimentary. Yeah. 70% of our surface is sedimentary rocks. Okay. And so sedimentary rocks, by definition, haven't been heated up to melting. <laughs> And so, right. therefore, <laughs> therefore, they're not going to have TRMs, um, but they have this thing called chemical remnant magnetizations. Because it turns out when you're cooking something at a high temperature for a short amount of time, like cooling magma down into rocks, um, it's the same as cooking something for a, at a lower temperature for a long amount of time in terms of acquiring a magnetization. Okay. Yeah. So we cook lots of sedimentary rocks at lower temperatures for long times, right? When we bury them and bury them and bury them, and they sit there in basins, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's the geothermal gradient? It's what, 25-ish degrees kilometers, something like that? Yeah, exactly. So you can cook something for a long time, millions of years, at this low temperature, and you can also impart a remnant magnetization. Now, usually this is done by, in basins, you have a lot of fluids that are going on. And so usually these fluids are flowing through them. And so you're actually growing magnetic minerals. Iron is a pretty common thing to 
take out of one mineral and mobilize in basin fluids and then deposit again. So luck would have it. That's what we need in terms of making magnetic minerals. And so as these magnetic minerals grow, that kind of mineral growth is called orthogenic minerals. So minerals that grow later on after lava's been cooled down or whatever and then eroded into a sedimentary rock, you can grow new minerals through different processes. And so these new minerals acquire the remnant magnetization when they were growing. And so it's not dating the sedimentary rock. It's already a rock. But what it's doing right. is dating the time that those minerals were growing. So you can translate that into the time it was at a pretty warm burial depth. Because if we know temperature, you know we can figure out depth based on that geothermal gradient thing. And so instead of telling you when the rock was formed, it's telling you when a process happened to the rock. Okay. So you're getting another marker in the, right. in the rock's life. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's like my advisor, um, Dr. Doug Elmore, was one of the people that sort of really spearheaded a lot of this magnetization in sedimentary rocks. And I call the igneous rocks low-hanging fruit, not because it's like easier to do, but it's more likely that your igneous rock is going to have a remnant magnetization. Um, sedimentary rocks are messy, right? They're made up of all the other rock types. <laughs> so you yeah. have to hope something has happened to them or they've eroded a rock that has some magnetic minerals or they've grown magnetic minerals in order for them to have a remnant magnetization. And so these chemical remnant magnetizations are pretty common in sedimentary rocks. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I guess, do you depend on in sedimentary rocks then? Well, well, you can't. So you think, okay, they're made up of a bunch of little grains of other stuff, so they're going to be randomly oriented. And, well, probably not, though. So... <laughs> I guess you're really looking at then the, the sum of multiple magnetic fields. So it depends, right? This, this really depends because if your magnetic field is, a, if they're in a magnetic field for a long enough amount of time, it will orient everything into the same direction. Okay. So this is where you have to do paleomagus a lot more than just saying, oh, I've got this magnetization. It's a lot of what we'd call rock magnetics, which is different than paleomagnetics. So paleomagnetics is looking at the remnant magnetizations. Rock magnetics is looking at the things that are holding the magnetizations. And so you have to take a look because size and type and shape actually matter a lot in how a grain acquires a magnetization. And so over a long enough time period at elevated temperatures, everything gets remagnetized, hopefully. But you're right. There are some hangers on because <laughs> right? you're not going through that high Curie temperature. So you're not resetting everything. So CRMs are more difficult to interpret. And it does make for kind of a messier data set. You really got to get in there and understand all the parts of the sedimentary processes that occurred in order to be able to tease out what is actually a CRM in there or not. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a thing, um, red bed Ted is a big story that a lot of sedimentologists tell because, you know, we're here in Oklahoma, well, in the central part of Oklahoma, all of our rocks or all of our soils really red, right? And so there is a big, I like to say it's one of like those really iconic nerd fights, right? Where people, <laughs> <laughs> this guy, um, Ted, Red Bed Ted, was talking about how like soils can get reddened, right? And the red is from hematite. It's from this magnetic mineral, right? Um, and so there's a lot of controversy about the growth of hematite in these situations. That's certainly its own its own story because it is a pretty iconic nerd fight in the world of sedimentology. Mm -hmm. Right. 
<laughs> Red Bed Ted. What a great nickname to get. It is. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, he's uh, talked about in the Earth's Magnetic Field book that I finished. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's the right. The Earth's Magnetic Field. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a big... My advisor was at the talk that he gave. Yeah. Where it was a big controversy or whatever. Which is always fun. I don't know. Very uncomfortable. But fun to watch if you're not involved in controversy like that. <laughs> it's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. What did, what did they say about it in the book? Oh, they just described, like, this was another step in understanding their magnetic field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's an awful lot of red beds everywhere. Yes. Yeah. And they occur at different times. And so when you're in this oxidative environment, I mean, that red is just rust. So you have this hematite that's made of iron and oxygen is all it is. And so it acquires Earth's magnetic field because it's sitting there in Earth's magnetic field while it's growing. And so that's what happens. So these red beds were pretty important in terms of getting a terrestrial record reverse magnetic field because it's really great to be able to go and get this record reverse magnetic field at spreading ridges because it's just a constant flow of cooling magma. That's awesome. Very high fidelity. But it's harder because out here we're doing stuff like eroding rocks all the time. And so you don't have that kind of fidelity in the record, the terrestrial record. Okay. Yeah. 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 But that leads also, when we talk about sedimentary rocks, because that's what mostly these CRMs are, there is another way that these rocks could get, these sedimentary rocks could acquire their remnant magnetization, and it's called a detrital remnant magnetization. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so CRMs can occur in processes, diagenetic processes. And I know we've used that word before. And it means, to remind everyone, diagenesis is everything that happens to a rock after it's lithified into a rock. So, you know, stuff like stylolites or all these other fun things are all diagenetic effects that occur. It's virtually okay. everything, right? Like... Everything is after that. <laughs> but if you're talking about making a sedimentary rock, before it's lithified into a rock, it's just sediments, right? And yeah, when you're and they're loose or very yeah. loose sometimes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Literal grains that are sitting there. And as you deposit these grains, they can acquire magnetization. But think of this like... Where a river meets a lake. Okay. So this river dumps into this lake. And because of that change in velocity and all that jazz, it's going to immediately dump a whole bunch of its sediments, right? Because the flow parameters are changing. Right. Right. So your flow parameters are changing. You immediately dump all this sediment. Now, there's a fun little math that you can do. Because some of the sediment probably has some magnetic minerals in it, okay? Maybe they're shaped like little needles. Magnetite likes to form little needles. Maybe they're little equant spheres. Whatever they are, they're affected by whatever magnetic field they're in. And while these grains are settling down to the bottom, it's actually enough time for most grains, even in, even in a little river, it's enough time for them to actually physically align into Earth's magnetic field. Yeah, so they become little compass needles. Exactly. That's exactly what they are. Yep. And so not a lot of time falling through water, it turns out. And they are these little compass needles. And if you imagine blankets of compass needles getting deposited... Now, overall, when you sample this, when it becomes a rock, it's going to carry 
that magnetic signature with it. And so now you can actually date the formation of that sedimentary rock if it contains this detrital remnant magnetization. Okay. Yeah. There's actually a really cool um, experiment that was done to prove this. This is, a, this is a very neat empirical evidence that this happens. Okay, so this guy took a tank with water and clay, and he is in a magnetically shielded environment. He applies a magnetic field. Okay, so everything that's in the tank feels this magnetic field. And let's just say it is pointing down. Okay, so we'll use just like Earth's magnetic field, right? In the northern hemisphere, it's pointing down. If it were to flip, it would be pointing up, okay? So clay settling through this column of water. It's in the presence of this magnetic field. Cool. Then, after he has a substantial amount of this clay settled out that's been subjected to this magnetic field, he takes the magnetic field away. Okay, great. All right, yep. So he's going to use the same clay. He's going to switch a magnetic field. But before he does that, he lays down a layer that makes this little thin calcite layer. So now he has a visual marker of where there was no field. Okay, so this calcite's laid down in a zero field environment. Great. We resume the experiment, and we flip the magnetic field to switch in the other direction. So now it's pointing up, just to say. He starts to flocculate all the clay, and it starts to deposit again. Now, you would expect that all the clay below the calcite layer has the down orientation of the magnetic field, and all the clay above it has the up, right? That's what you would think. That's what you would think. But what happened is a little layer right below the calcite actually oriented into the up direction as well. Why? Hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. So this is called a post-depositional remnant magnetization, a PDRM. And why it did that was because at the very top of that clay layer, nothing was compacted down as much. Okay, there's a calcite layer on top, but it wasn't like pressing down on it. And so those little magnetic minerals that were in that clay actually had space to rotate into the newly applied magnetic field direction. Hmm, that's fascinating. Isn't it? <laughs> I think that's one of the coolest empirical experiments ever. <laughs> I want to do some math on that now because I remember when I took PMAG, hearing about the, the idea that, okay, these things fall through the water column and it takes them very little time to orient, mm -hmm. going, mm, and actually like calculating what torque the magnetic field would yep. exert and trying to approximate water drag and all this mm -hmm. and going, okay, like that, that could work. Yeah. But now I want to do it again with friction. <laughs> it's all in the book. Um, yeah. It's, it's shocking. It's, I mean, it's seconds. Mm-hmm. And so these post-depositional remnant magnetizations are pretty interesting, too, that you can, you just have enough, even in clay, porosity and permeability there, that your tiny little, and the magnets, the, the minerals that hold these remnant magnetizations are on the order of a couple of microns. So they're very small. Yeah, we're not talking about big things for sure. Yes, not, yeah, not even... it's... Sand grains are huge compared to these. Yes, exactly. It's not something that you would be able to pick up and say, this magnetite is holding this magnetic remnants in it. Um, because once they get big enough, they actually can't hold a remnant magnetization, something we can talk about on another show. Um, so they have to be super tiny. And so those little tiny ones can physically rotate. They are affected by that aligning torque of the magnetic field and they switched i'll have to find that actual experiment but and find the paper on that this seems like a good one to reproduce in 2024 yeah it sure does make okay, your great. students do it 
Great. Let's do it. All right. Fantastic. I do have a couple of fish tanks laying around. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. They were specifically for making turbidites, but I'm sure we can do this experiment instead. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's, that's a really cool one. The problem with DRMs in general is that not all magnetic minerals are round. <laughs> and so the simple fact that if you have an elongate mineral, it's not going to stand up when it gets deposited. It's going to flatten out. And so there's this whole thing in paleomagnetism, if you're looking at sedimentary rocks, that you probably have some, it's called inclination shallowing. So your magnetic minerals show a shallower direction than when they were formed. And there's all kinds of really cool math that you could do to sort of average this this effect out. Um, so we've got a pretty good idea of how to handle that, but it does exist, so. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's hard to balance a needle on the end in yeah. water. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and keep it there. Um, yeah, so those are the three most common types of remnant magnetizations, but I had to put these other two in because obviously we really like to talk about these kind of things. Um, and so the first one is IRM, which is really funny because there is an institute of rock magnetism called the IRM. Amazing that you could do this <laughs> because there's also a type of remnant magnetization called the isothermal remnant magnetization or the IRM. Okay, so same temperature. We got that out of it. But mm-hmm. what else can you tell us? Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is a process that we use to determine some of these rock magnetic properties. So you can impart an IRM onto a rock. It's this great little machine that almost every PMAG um, lab has. And it's just a lot of different solenoids that you can plug in and out that will actually create a magnetization, right? Because right hand rule and all that. So you just make, run this electric field through this little solenoid. It makes whatever strength magnetization and you just stick your rock in there and it's isothermal because it's all happening at surface temperature and you hit this little button and it zaps the rock and now you've given it a magnetization. And to do that without heating it, you have to have a very, very strong field so strong that yeah. I've seen these things throw rocks into drywall. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they'd also do the same with paper clips, I imagine, but have never tested. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is, this is cool. The way you can do this stepwise, so you apply an increasingly intense magnetic field, and the way the rock accepts that magnetic field is a good indicator of what type and size of magnetic minerals you have in there. So that's the laboratory-induced IRM. That's pretty common in rock magnetic studies. But there's a naturally-induced IRM, too. And it has to do with one of our other favorite things, lightning. Yeah. So how else do you get really strong, intense magnetic fields for short periods of time? Lightning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So not the same isotherm as the (laughs) laboratory induced one (laughs) much higher um but this is really cool so this is what i did for um, my meteorology capstone is i took fulgurites and i put them in the magnetometer and then i back calculated out the voltage of the lightning that created those fulgurites yeah so you did not give that the awesomeness that it deserved, John. I, I'm, I need you to re-react to my awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is awesome. I'm mm-hmm. also just, well, okay, yeah, you've got 5,000 amps flowing through a charge channel. Of course it's going to remagnetize. <laughs> so we see these a lot, and they're a lot of, they're noise for paleomagnetists, essentially. Um this was pretty cool. It was a cool experiment. It was neat to do. It was really hard to stick a fulgurite into the magnetometer, <laughs> I will say. Right. <laughs> that was tough because um, they're not, you know, uniformly shaped. And I'm sure that my taping of the fulgurite into the sample holder was, definitely had a lot of error. But 
anyway. So one thing that I've always found funny about Paleo Mag has to do with this, which is you go out with your rock drill and you drill a site. You know, you put six or eight holes in a, let's say, one foot diameter circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we go do it a few more places on the rock. Mm-hmm. Because, well, what if lightning had hit there? Yeah. And you go, ah, oh, what are the chances of that? And then you think about how long that rock has been exposed at the surface. Exactly. And how many storms there have been. And I was always amazed at how many times you hit useless sample sites <laughs> because of lightning. Exactly. Yeah, you, um, you sampled extensively with me along this one road in Colorado that was just lightning central. <laughs> like, there were so many. And how do you tell? Well, when you're looking at the data, it is an exceptionally strong magnetic remnants. <laughs> And you just That's don't like straight down. Oh yeah, exactly. Like it's it is a ridiculously straight line. Like the principal component analysis is like, ooh, ding ding ding, you have the straightest line ever. And you're like, oh, it's a lightning strike. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rough. It's real rough. That's the worst luck I've ever had. I've probably and, only and you don't know until you do you hundreds don't... of hours of work of data collection. <laughs> it's really hard to get PMAG students because you're like. There's a lot of work on the front end before you even know if you have a thesis. Everybody's like, what? I'm like, I'm sorry. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's just how it is. Yeah. Luckily, I had enough other sites that it wasn't a problem. But it's always something to think about is that, you know, maybe you don't want the tippy top most symbol. Maybe you want to, like, go down a little bit because it dissipates very quickly. Right? Yes. You know, just like how not all the fish in the lake are going to die lightning strikes so it dissipates in rock very quickly as well but yeah it stinks (laughs) yeah and and maybe i i guess that has somewhat colored my view of it because that is one of my early paleo mag experiences and i'm like oh my gosh like we did all this work and 70 percent of it's useless (laughs) that's exactly right so this is actually probably um, the word lodestone, L-O-D-E stone, right? Right. Those are, like they would say, lodestones. Those are always these things in geology. And it's magnetite that has like a strong enough magnetism that it will attract stuff to it, right? And so Earth's magnetic field is pretty weak. So how do you get these like lodestones, right? This is also how we, you know, the ancient Greeks identified lodestones. This is how we started using magnets as compasses. And these I are mean, they, probably... They tried to pick up paper clips, right? Yes, right? Yeah. Okay, so I thought... <laughs> they invented clipping, the ancient Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> on that note, literally. So these lodestones, in order to like get something that magnetized, you know, these are probably struck by lightning. And that lightning was just giving them these remnant magnetizations. Hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. I, I do a lot of... I have a lecture on the origin of, like, the magnetic field and compasses and stuff, and it's, like, 900 slides longer than I ever get to just because that's a rabbit hole I've spent a lot of time in. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. But anyway, there's one more. We don't have a lot to say about it on here today because we've talked about it a bazillion times. And that is shock remnant magnetization, <laughs> one of your other favorite things. Exactly. I don't even think this really exists. I really think it's probably shock remnant demagnetization, but that is a paper I haven't written yet, so I'm not going to... Well, and also, when you impart this much shock to something, it's going to be hot. Yeah, exactly. There's an interesting... So when I worked on... um, I worked on, obviously, these meteorite impact locations a couple times, my master's and beyond. We looked at that, and we thought, okay, well, it's probably going to be hot 
And so if you're going to heat up the rocks, you're probably going to give them a magnetization. But there are other indicators in rocks that you can look at to see how hot they get. And one of those is the conodonts. And conodonts, right. yeah, if you remember, maybe you don't. The alteration index. Yes. <laughs> so conodonts are these little jaws from worms. Look up this stuff. It is bizarre. We have no idea what they're from. We don't know. We assume it's a soft-bodied thing, so they're like worms with teeth. Super creepy. There is some great art on the internet. Not like trimmers at all. <laughs> Not at all. Exactly. Exactly like tremors. And so their little jaw bones and their little teeth get preserved. But the coolest thing that um, this woman found out, which was great because, of course, no one believed her because she was a woman in science in the, <laughs> in the 19th century. Um, right. And she said, look, everyone, if you heat these things up, they change color which was awesome. So it's very reliable. They go from being clear to black based on the temperatures they've been exposed to, which was great because it's really easy to get relative things in geology, relative temperature, relative, you know, this is hotter than that, or relative dates, but it's hard to get exact. But this Conodont Alteration Index gave you exact stuff. And it turns out the Conodont Alteration Index in my... Meteorite impacted rocks was really low. It was like hmm. 0.51, which is not a lot. And so the explanation that we came up with after talking to a whole bunch of people was that it's just probably not long enough. The heating isn't long enough to actually bake the conodonts into another color. So, Okay, so yeah, I mean, it's... It's definitely a very acute heating yes. event. Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you have a magnetization associated with an impact crater, it's probably related to like hydrothermal alteration. So you've heated up all the groundwater because it was such a big impact, that kind of thing. I was looking at pretty small ones, so yeah. But that supposedly exists. It's out there. Empirically, we've shown it, and this is a great experiment too, is that you just shoot BBs at little balls of clay. <laughs> yeah. And you impart a magnetization right around them. Yeah. So. yeah. I remember there was a NASA paper a number of years ago using a very high-dollar tax-funded giant BB gun. Yes, exactly. To do some of this on exactly. pieces of granite. It's so good. <laughs> you know, I feel like all those types of experiments are pretty, you know, fundamental. So where do we go from there after these fundamental experiments have, have occurred? Well, that sounds like it's time for something fun, and that's Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Yay. Gosh, we'd be so lost without Daryl. Just it's lost. It's true. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, this paper is Papers and Patents Are Becoming Less Disruptive Over Time by Park et al. So this paper, which was published a little over a year ago, it's really mind-blowing to me. I think it was exceedingly interesting because what, what on earth does this mean? And it kind of goes with the theme of our whole podcast, which is there's a lot of scientific information out there now. There's a lot of scientists out there now. So does that mean our science isn't as interesting and groundbreaking? And it turns out, yeah, that's exactly what it means. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very definitively. <laughs> mm -hmm. There was lots of cool statistical analysis in this paper. I thought you would have liked. Yes. And I was initially, I was like, well, how do you tell if something is disruptive like yeah this was brilliant and simple too yeah but i mean because what do they mean by disruptive they mean is it like not Does life it change the way we think about something exactly not life changing but yeah it changes the way we think about something and they have this index that runs does this change the way we think about stuff or is it just an advancement of something that's already out there 
Like, it's still a big deal, but it's just, as Newton said, building upon the shoulders of giants. Right. So does it consolidate knowledge or disrupt knowledge? So they made this thing called the CD index. Uh-huh. And the idea is, if it's disruptive, then the works before it get cited much less after its publication, because they're now the old ideas that have been disproven or fallen out of favor. And if it's consolidating, it gets cited alongside the previous work. Did you love the way they grab, like, the the figures that visualize this? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one, it looks like they're pretty clearly done in Python, so that's nice. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so you were biased before you even knew what they said. <laughs> but, but, yeah, so you see the average CD index go down pretty significantly from the 50s on because, well... We don't know why exactly, but also you see spikes in it right around certain years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this like is so that align cool. with things like computers. Yeah, oh, this is so neat. Other <clears throat> tools that we could use to do, you know, this tool of being able to solve differential equations fast on your desk unlocked a lot more modeling that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought a unique aspect of this paper as well, is they're not just tracking that, obviously, this is in nature, um, is they're not just tracking science, but they're tracking patents, too. I thought it was a really robust view of the research world, right? Because there's academia versus industry, and they're tracking them both, and they both say the same thing. Well, and also, now, maybe something to do with the upturn that you see in the patents disruptivity in the last few years is that, well... Universities are now getting into the patent business, too. If you work at a university, you work in industry. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Well, all the emails I've gotten about how we do paperwork now (laughs) already confirmed that for me. (laughs) But yes, this also confirms it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I thought their usage of visualizations of these concepts was really cool. I also thought one of the very neat things that they talked about was the change, the linguistic change seen alongside this. And so they assigned basically disruptive words and consolidating words in titles that they scanned. And they, they did what is like millions of abstracts and papers. Yeah, it was a lot of abstracts. Yeah, and they did it everywhere. So like Web of Science is a big one where you can get all of these, but then they went into specific um, specific indices too. So they didn't use just Web of Science. They looked at all of them. All of this stuff confirms the exact same trends. But the linguistic changes were really interesting because, you know, words that created new paradigms versus ones that enforced old paradigms and I never thought about this. Like, it's actually pretty hard to name, like, to write out, you know, the name of your paper and the different words that you use in terms of, like, novel approach or, you know, new methodology makes a difference. Yeah, and, like, one that came up a lot was improve. Mm, That's obviously mm-hmm. a confirming or a consolidating, not disruptive Mm-hmm. Yep. Mediate. That was a weird one that I didn't. didn't yeah, that one feels very life science. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Induce, associate. Yeah. Versus produce or make or form. I thought those are very interesting. That was a, I wonder how they thought to use that. Yeah. I mean, they had to have consulted with a language expert yeah yeah maybe this is something that that other people talk about more than we do but i thought that was a really cool part of this too so they used a bunch of different data repositories to do this they used a bunch of different ways to look at it and they also did there was a time aspect to it right um around these major that's kind of how they figured that out too is around these major papers that change paradigms, you know, you look at how often those get cited versus the stuff that that paper cited. Um, That's just a really, 
interesting thing that clearly I think about, right? Because it's hard to, as it says in here, which is why I said it twice in the podcast already, um, you know, the low-hanging fruit's already been taken. But it looks like that's probably true for most most things, sort of, I guess. I don't know. They talked about that quite a bit. Um, because not all of them have the same declines. But. Yeah, I mean, they all are going down, but not all as drastically. Yes. I was kind of sad because it looked like the physical sciences were going down the most. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were going down pretty healthily. Mm-hmm. Uh, another interesting statistic that was in here, just looking about, oh, well, let's see what else we can learn about citations since we have this massive data set, is that uh, self-citation has gone up by a factor of four. Yes. So this is a really interesting one because I get mad at my students about this, and that's what I was thinking about when I was reading this part of it is that it says people don't, scientists, don't have, like, the breadth of knowledge. Like, they're taking off little slices, and they're staying within that little slice and learning it just because it's so overwhelming to, like, take in all the previous knowledge, right? Um, So you have to know a lot of that, but you kind of stay in your lane, I guess, and so you're citing yourself because you're building on your previous stuff, not this like broad scale thing, which I thought was a really interesting thing because it's certainly a discussion that we have a lot in the sciences is are, are people getting too specialized, right? There aren't these like broad thinkers or these broad experiments. It's like, I look at magnetite formed by goats in Malaysia. That's it, you know. Right. I don't, but I would if I could, I guess. <laughs> but, well, you know, it's, it's that sort of thinking. And so. They point out in this paper, which is something that we've talked about extensively on and off the air, you're not going to reverse this and encourage truly disruptive science because that is high risk of not working until you get people away from this publisher parish exactly. model. Exactly. I love their phrasing in here. It says that to promote disruptive science, you need to give scientists the time to read widely is what they say. And really to expand that knowledge frontier by reading widely. And so it says it goes on that we need to let researchers support them in stuff like better funded year long sabbaticals, right? Like I just got off a sabbatical. I can tell you it flew by. I couldn't do a year because you get paid half time for a year instead of full time. Um, And so I could certainly benefit from a year, right? I mean, everyone could. That's the point. And they say, you need to give researchers the time they need to do this reading. Also, to inoculate themselves from the publisher parish culture. And produce truly (laughs) consequential work. I thought that was amazing. I don't understand why this paper is not cited in... This is amazing. It's a really an amazing paper, right? So you don't have the time to do it because guess what? I answered 8,000 emails today. So maybe if I had time to read papers, you could push the envelope more on disruptive research. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely going to like carpet bomb the department with this. I'm going to copy off this page. And I'm going to highlight that part <laughs> and I'm just going to throw it around see what happens i mean i do miss the days of you know early reading early papers where somebody may have only published one paper that year Mm -hmm. but that paper is also considered a cornerstone of an entire subfield yeah exactly and it's not a two-page short article or something that has 18 pages of supplemental figures Mm mm-hmm it's it's a meaningful, sizable contribution. Exactly. It's not a least publishable unit. I was, I was counseled. I went to, as a PhD student, I went to a, an amazing program. I 
cannot say enough good things about it. It was a very intense, like, three-day how-to-be-a-professor workshop in the geosciences. It was unbelievable. But one of the people that they did have doing the mentoring, that is exactly what they said. They said, publish in the, you know, the, the least amount of data you can do to get a publication, do that. And then you build on that. And then you build on that. And that's how you get publications. Right. That's not what you should do. <laughs> Our job isn't to generate publications, it's to generate knowledge. Exactly. That is exactly right. And so I, our department, which I am super proud of, you know, has gone to a, a, um, like a window, an averaging window of time that like you publish X amount of papers in X number of years. And that's a start, okay. I guess. You know, that's a start to be like, okay, so maybe you're working on a really big thing and then two or three papers come out about that really big thing. Right. So it's at least a little bit of a start, I think. But yeah, it stinks. <laughs> and this it is does. really amazing. Mm -hmm. But this was a great work and a great way to say, look, like there's no perfect way to quantify this, but we have such massive amounts of data now. We can take a stab at it and start seeing some very clear signals. Right, exactly. And, and the outcome it's pretty clear what you need to do to get better at it. but Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go copy this off and get some highlighting done. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Shannon, if folks have the result of their own falling clay experiment <laughs> or would like to submit an article for consideration and publication in our new journal, Least Publishable Unit, how can they do that? You can email us, don'tpanicgeocast at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, we can always support us in our attempts to take time to keep up with scientific research. <laughs> and you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.